All right. So, <clears throat> trust is one of the key components of the Christian life. And I don't think it gets talked about enough. And I think one of the reasons is because we don't understand the kind of trust we're supposed to have. And when I say trust, like, know that I'm talking about trust in God. Okay? So, I think we often think about trust as that scene from the superhero movies where the heroine or the damsel in distress is hanging off the side of the building and she's hanging by one arm and the superhero comes and looks at her, do you trust me? <laughs> Grabs her by the arm and pulls her up or maybe she's at the side of the cliff but the same scene transpires. And, and I think we, we go through a lot of life thinking about trust like that. Like, I'll go to God, I'll reach out to God when it's catastrophic. But I don't think that's the kind of trust that's called for in the Bible. I think the kind of trust we're called to is the, the kind of recognition that every breath I take today and have taken today is a gift of God. The fact that we didn't melt today because the earth didn't get closer to the sun or freeze today because the earth somehow got farther away from the sun. Yeah, that was God that did that. Did that. We trust in him to keep those two things in place. When you slept last night, everything inside you stayed where it was supposed to stay and functioned the way it was supposed to function. While you, you did nothing except go unconscious. You, you even see this kind of trust as Jesus tells us how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. We take that for granted, don't we? But the fact that you have food in your stomach is a gift of God. The fact that you're here tonight is a gift of God. The fact that you have faith, if, if you're here tonight and have faith, that's a gift of God. Amen. And some of you might just be clinging <laughs> by a sliver of faith, and that is a gift of God. I think that's the kind of trust we're called to. And that's the kind of trust I want to move us just a little bit closer toward. And chief of hypocrites is up here saying all this to y'all. Like, this is not my normal bent. But I think we've got a lot to learn from Ruth chapter 3 as we try to move just a little bit closer to that, that kind of trust. Did I say Ruth chapter 3 or Romans chapter 3? For a moment I had this... Did I just say Romans? Because my small group's going through Romans, and that's on my mind a lot, too. So, um, All right, before, before we jump into Ruth chapter 3, remember where we are in the story. Let me give you a quick summary. So Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, moved from the promised land to Moab because of a famine in, in the promised land. 
Naomi's husband dies there in Moab. Uh, <clears throat> they had two sons, though, before he passed away. And Naomi, after the, the husband dies, the two sons die there in Moab as well. Um, Naomi returns to Bethlehem with Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law. But as they come back, they come back empty, having nothing. No money, no husbands, no children, and almost no hope. In chapter 2, Ruth went to work in the fields of a relative named Boaz. And as Boaz and Ruth met for the first time, you can start to feel some energy between them. And as that energy is present, you can also start to feel a little hope for hers and for Naomi's future. And that's where we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 3. So if you want to read along in your own Bible, you can. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen behind me, and I'll move aside just a little bit. Ruth chapter 3, this is God's word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. We're going to look at this chapter from three different angles. Naomi's angle, which I'm going, to, I'm going to call running ahead of God. Second angle will be Boaz's angle, which I'm just going to say there is character matters. Character matters. And then third, Ruth, Ruth's angle, a recipient of hesed love. And I'll explain that as we get into this. A recipient of hesed love. 
So let's talk about Naomi and running ahead of God. Look, look back there at verses 1 through 5. Naomi's starting to feel her fortunes turning. She had hatched a plan to make sure things kept moving along in the right direction, you know, just to help God out a little bit. She told Ruth to put on her prettiest dress, splash on her best perfume, and go lay next to Boaz after he had finished his evening meal. We don't know what Naomi's intentions were. I don't think she was purposefully putting Ruth in harm's way. They had a very sweet relationship between them. And we also don't know that she intended this to get sexual in any way, but at the very least, she was putting Ruth into a situation where that could happen. Naomi was wanting to hurry things along with Boaz and Ruth. Naomi was trying to maneuver and manipulate the circumstances to achieve a desired outcome. She was willing to compromise the means to arrive at a desired, even good, end. Boaz was a good man, and marriage to Boaz would be a good thing. But she was willing to compromise the way to that good thing. She was running ahead of God. She didn't trust God to work things out, so she took matters into her own hands and put Ruth at risk, Boaz at risk, their relationship at risk, and a whole lot of futures at risk. The summer between my freshman and sophomore year here at JMU, I met a, a girl who was in the D.C. I grew up in D.C., like right outside D.C., and, and this girl was up uh, from out of state doing an internship there. She was from a dairy farm in rural Pennsylvania. The only thing I knew about her before we started dating was that she looked good. We did the long distance dating thing from September to November. I went up to visit her over Thanksgiving break of that year. We're hanging out watching a movie one evening and her dad comes into the family room and he says, Kristen, I'm going to bed. Keep an eye on that cow. She's likely going to calve tonight. That should have been a sign to me to get in my car <laughs> and drive. <laughs> About an hour later, we're out in the barn and Kristen turned to me and said, you want to help deliver a calf? I had no choice, did I? I'm trying to press this girl. What am I going to say? <laughs> City boy had to say yes. Plus, I figured how hard, how hard could this be, right? Sit at the back end, catch the thing it falls out. I, I play football, I play, you know, I catch. Next thing I know, she's telling me to put my hand inside this cow. That's how you calve a calf. I had already said yes. I'm in up to my arm, reaching in, and she's telling me to find the hooves of this cow, of this calf. And once I find them, I'm supposed to pull this thing out. No. <laughs> All this to impress a girl. 
to make a relationship work. In case you're wondering, the calf turned out fine, has lived a, a happy life. Yes. An example of me running ahead of God, making things work for me. And where did it get me? <laughs> Up to my office. <laughs> we won't say it anymore. But we all run ahead of God, don't we? That's not just me. We all run ahead of God. We run ahead of God when we settle for a boyfriend or a girlfriend just because someone is finally interested. And then we begin to make excuses for their ungodly character and no evidence of a Christ-serving, Jesus-following life. Got to make it work out for me. Or we run ahead of God when we take the job that will give us the highest salary or the loftiest title. But we don't ask questions like, will that move be good for my soul? Is there a good church there? Are there ways I can serve Christ in that city? Or we run ahead of God when our first instinct is to fix rather than to pray. Or when we turn to our own strategies rather than to the scriptures. Or when we complain rather than trust God's good purposes in our lives. I heard a preacher say, we need to learn to leave God's plans in God's hands for God's times. That's a good way to live. We need to learn to leave God's plans in God's hands for God's times. One of the most repeated commands of the Bible is to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord. I think at the root of a lot of our running ahead of God, at the root of our not trusting God, is because we don't like to wait on the Lord. Listen to Psalm 37. Trust, not the whole thing. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Y'all hear that? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Now here's how it winds down. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Waiting for the Lord. It's hard to do because we're an impatient and an unbelieving people. But his ways are always good and his timing is always perfect. Before we get into Boaz and character matters, let me make a quick clarification here. Waiting is not opposed to doing. It's important you get that. Waiting is not opposed to doing. They're not mutually exclusive. Waiting is simply a heart posture of looking to the Lord, trusting in him in all your ways, and then doing to the best of your ability what you know to be the will of God. 
See how those go together? Let me, let me read that again. Waiting is simply a heart posture of looking to the Lord, trusting in him in all your ways, and then doing to the best of your ability what you know to be the will of God. So an easier way to say that is we wait and we do. We wait and we act. Boaz, character matters. If you jump down to the next section, 6 through 13, in contrast to Naomi was Boaz. We see his godly character in several ways. First was his integrity. Did you see that? This, this was a situation he could have taken advantage of. It's clear from the text that we've read in the past that Ruth was attractive. She had already gotten the attention of many since she had been in Bethlehem. And she was also very vulnerable. Not only status of life, but on this particular night in chapter 3. But Boaz was a man of integrity. And his integrity flowed out of a deeply rooted trust in God. Unlike Naomi, he trusted God to work all of this out in God's time and in God's way. He trusted God above his desires, above his hopes for the future, and even above the circumstances. Boaz knew that the providences of God, in other words, what God provides, are not self-interpreting. The providences of God are not self-interpreting. He didn't look at the situation and say, well, it looks like God has provided, so I might as well. That wasn't his attitude. Reminds me of that story of King David. Remember, remember Saul was, was trying to kill, well, David wasn't king at this point. Saul was king. Um, Saul was trying to kill David because he felt threatened by David. Uh, he knew God was shifting his hand of anointing onto David, um, so he was jealous of David. But several different times he tried to kill David. And there was one time David was on the run, Saul goes into a cave to, to rest. Scripture even says to relieve himself. Um, let your imagination go with that. Um, but David, David's like right beside him. And can kill King Saul right now. And his men are even looking at him like, kill him. God's giving you. I don't know if it went down like that, but that's how I imagine. Like, what is wrong with you? But David wouldn't do it. David was not having that because Saul was God's anointed. David refused to use his circumstances as an excuse or as an open door to go against the will of God. You see, character matters. And that kind of integrity, that kind of trust that we see both in David and Boaz come from being deeply rooted in God's word and in consistently living by God's word. Character is what you are when no one else is watching. And it's formed over the long haul. There are no shortcuts Character is formed by knowing God's word and living God's word over the course of a lifetime. You see, Boaz knew and trusted God, and you could see it in how he lived out his life. You can see it in this, 
situation. You can see it in chapter 2, and you're going to see it again in chapter 4. There's a, a quote here I want you to, to hear about Boaz. I think it's going to be on the screen. Those who knew, this is about Boaz and his character and where it comes from. Those who knew Boaz even a little would know that his covenant God must be a God of tenderness and compassion, of great sweetness and gentleness in his righteous dealing with his children. We cannot hide what we really believe God is like. Love this next sentence. Our our personal disposition is an unending expression of our understanding of and trust in his character. Our personal disposition, in other words, who you are, how you live, is an unending expression of how you understand and how you trust in who God is. How we live, how we respond to challenges, crises, and trials reveals what we really believe about God and what we really think deep down about him. So what do you believe about God? Deep down, what do you think of him? When crisis and trials and challenges come, What comes out of you? What picture of God would people get if they watched your life? Would they know a God who is kind and forgiving and gracious and committed to his people? Because this is who God is. Will you believe it and will you live like you believe it? Lastly, Ruth, and we'll do this quickly, a recipient of Hesed love. Ruth, a recipient of Hesed love, God's Hesed love. So last section, 14 through 18. Ruth was a recipient yet again. We've talked about this before, but it shows up throughout the book of Ruth. She's a recipient yet again of God's Hesed love. God's stubborn, one-way, unmerited, kind and gracious love. That's what Hesed love is. Ruth brought very little to the table, right? She was a poor and needy widow, hopeless and helpless along with Naomi. And yet God continued to shower her with Hesed love, in particular through Boaz. You see it there in that that last section. Look at how Boaz protected Ruth. He even goes so far as to protect her reputation. He, He told his servants, tell no one that Ruth had been here. Also, look at how Boaz provided for Ruth and Naomi yet again. He sent her away with six measures of barley. That's 80 pounds. That's 80 pounds of barley. She carried that all the way home from the fields into Bethlehem. Talk about leg day, man. She's lugging that stuff. Again, Boaz provided an abundance for Ruth and Naomi. And in all of this, Ruth was just a recipient. She didn't earn any of this. She didn't deserve any of this. These were not her wages. God, through Boaz, was simply showering her with grace. God was showing himself, his nature, his character, his love 
through the kindness of Boaz. One, one more thing I want you to, to think about as you think about Ruth. I think we see in her the same kind of faith and faithfulness that we see in Boaz. Here's where I get that from. As Boaz wakes up and asks who she was, did you see what she said? It's back in, it's back in verse 10. It's not in this last section, but I'll read it to you. I am, this is how she answers. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This was not Ruth, Ruth's best shot at a pickup line here. This was the same language used in chapter 2 to describe Ruth, one who sought refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. She saw Boaz as God's instrument for hesed love. And at the end of verse 10, she even called on Boaz, Boaz to fulfill his role as redeemer. But what does that mean? How and what is a redeemer? That's how we'll end tonight. So to understand what a redeemer is, you got to understand two laws from the Old Testament. First, there was the law of the kinsman redeemer. The idea behind that, if a family member went broke and had to sell themselves into slavery to make ends meet, the kinsman redeemer, that relative would come and buy them out of slavery, paying the, part, paying the price for their freedom. Or if a family member lost their land, the kinsman redeemer would pay and bring the land back into the family. Or if a family member were murdered, it was the kinsman redeemer who would pursue justice for that dead family member. The second law that applies here was the leveret law that provided for the family line to be continued. So it went like this. If a man died, his brother or uncle or cousin or close relative, and in that order, would marry the man's wife so that hopefully they could have a son and carry on the family line and in each of these laws, God was mercifully providing for his people, especially the poor, the needy, the hopeless, and the helpless. So what does this have to do with Boaz and Ruth? Boaz was a relative of Ruth's deceased father-in-law. He was in a position, and he had the means, he had the resources to fulfill these laws on behalf of of Ruth and Naomi. But he, again, would do things God's way and in God's time. I don't know if you caught this, but Boaz spoke of a redeemer nearer than I. Where does he say that? Verse 12, Verse 12. okay. He, yeah, he speaks of a redeemer nearer than I. You see, Boaz would not run ahead of God. There was a relative closer than Boaz, and Boaz would honor God and, and honor God's word by obeying his word and by trusting God's plan. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. But don't you see Jesus in this story? Don't you see Jesus in this kinsman redeemer? Because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. We are the poor and needy. We are the hopeless and the helpless under the power and the penalty of our sin. But God sent one to redeem us. 
His perfect son, Jesus, paid the price of justice on the cross. That's what we just celebrated on Good Friday. He paid the price of justice on the cross, the price that our sins deserved. And in paying that price, he bought us out of slavery, slavery to our sin. And our Redeemer, Jesus, has purchased a land for us where we will dwell in his presence throughout eternity. See, Boaz is here to be a picture of Jesus, our kinsman, Redeemer. Do you see what God has done for you in giving you Jesus as your kinsman, Redeemer? Will you trust in Jesus to redeem you? Will you look to him to cover your sin? And will you worship him for his unspeakable, immeasurable, matchless grace? That's what our kinsman redeemer has given to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, who while we were hopeless and helpless, dead in our sins and trespasses, You sent him to make us alive in Christ. Thank you that we have been set free from the power and the penalty of our sin. Thank you that you have given to us grace in abundance. And I pray, Lord, more and more, we would think of you like that. And that that is what would come out of how we live and and how we talk. That kind of grace. Lord, draw us near, and I pray that the world might know that we are your disciples because of how we love you, how we love each other, and how we love the world. Do this in us for your glory and for our good, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.